This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's show may contain references to erotic and sexual subjects, so make your decisions about where and how to listen. Today's guest is Brianna Kavanaugh. Brianna Kavanaugh is the financial bliss mentor who helps businesses who are making a difference in the world transform their finances and make more money. Brianna empowers business owners and entrepreneurs to create change within their organizations by building knowledge, confidence, and joy. With over 20 years of experience in her role as a coach and over 14 years of accounting expertise, she is the CEO of Bliss Your Money, a bookkeeping firm supporting six-plus-figure women-owned businesses, six-plus-figure women-owned businesses, and social impact organizations. She's a sought-after speaker. She builds and runs workshops and trainings and sometimes still dives into one-on-one to help you understand financial self-care and relieve the financial pressure to support you in moving toward the life you long to live. She recently started a podcast called Fat Girl Finds Love about finding love in a world that hates fat people, and you can find that podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Brianna. Hi. I'm so... I I love talking to you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I love talking to you, too. Brianna and I, listeners should know Brianna and I have known each other for a while and are local to each other. So we've actually met in person, which is really exciting and pretty uncommon yeah. for my podcast listeners. So we like each other. It's good. We do. It's excellent. And we've had all kinds of, of interesting conversations, so I'm really excited to see where this interview goes. But what I want to start with, Brianna, your business is in money, basically. You, right. you do your work with finances yeah. and money and specifically empowering women and non-binary folks. And you have this social impact element and kind of an activist edge to the work you do. So Tell us what you've noticed about power and money. How much time do you have? Um, so let me say I define power as the ability to act. And sometimes I think it's more useful, not more useful, but I think it's useful to, to talk about power, to talk about force, and to talk about that, that there are different kinds of power rather than just being like, oh, there's there's power and, you know, here it is. I think people often confuse power and force. And force is, like, force is what we see a lot in, like, our political world right now. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, like, if power is the ability to act money, and I keep trying to decide if it's just all money or money over a certain, like, amount is stored power. And so the things that people do with the two things that you really can do things with, which are your money and your time, are the things that say kind of the most about people. It used to be that I made everybody who come to work with me do an analysis of their their time and their money. And now I don't do so much one-on-one work with folks. But I still find that if 
when we get into money stuff with people that if they're still having a hard time with alignment, that the next place to look is, is time. Cause those are, I mean, it's really, it feels like those are the only two things that we have, right? Cause there's very many ways in which power is actually that stored power. So I guess we sort of talk about stored powers like influence also. These things are all kind of made up. It's invented. So you're saying that these are constructs that that don't exist in any real way, but we all believe in it. And so we all behave as though they're real. To some degree, that is exactly how shared reality works, right? We are like, hey, look, we've decided to use this thing called money and we're going to use it as a stand-in for all of these things. And then now that we've been doing that for a long time, we're like, oh, that money, that's a real thing, right? Right. But, you know, we don't have anything that it's based on except that people keep printing it. And, um, you know, there are, <laughs> I mean, this is just true. And then there are alternative currencies that, you know, um, they have their ups and downs and they're good things and they're bad points, right? Sometimes they work, sometimes they you know, fall apart. It it really, money is a very, it's very interesting. I just, you know, I've been doing, I keep doing it because money is so fascinating to me, right? And the way that people behave around money is so fascinating to me because it's so diverse and yet so diverse and yet so consistent, right? Um, money is one of those things that like we, it's transmitted. It's like, a, it's like, a, it's a socially transmitted experience. Um, I used to sometimes say it's socially transmitted disease, like the way that we are with our money. Like if you look at that, your caregivers growing up, the way that you are with your money is either exactly like or often or or the opposite of in many ways what your caregivers did. So there's there's like it is very transmitted. But the, the number of people who come to me who they're eventually like, oh, crap, I, I do money like my mother or, you know, I do money in a way that is exactly opposite, you know my dad or whatever. It's very, um, it's surprisingly common. And yet those ways themselves are very widely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. there And, and, and often, you know, it's one thing if it's conscious, but usually until someone like you asks that question, it's not conscious. Right. And so someone's like going merrily along thinking they're either doing it right or doing it wrong because we tend to attach moral judgments to our behavior around money a lot. Not just money, but yes. Yes, not not just money, but... We make conclusions. Our brains are designed to make conclusions, right? So we make conclusions, and money is like this breeding ground of conclusions. And so everybody's made all these conclusions, and they're like, this is how money is. And then they're like, crap, it's not working. <laughs> well, and, and you were talking about things that we make money a stand-in for, and we make money a stand-in for some things that sort of makes sense in the kind of economy we have, right? We make money a stand-in for work or for productivity. And, and there are reasons why that's not logical, but, but it sort of makes sense. But then we make money a stand-in for things like love or worthiness. <laughs> and that's where, you know, even those of us who listeners know I come out of a religious background, my professional training is as a minister as well as a coach. And that's where the religious people start to go, well, this is very interesting. Right. And why how are does you behaving this in this extraordinary fashion? Right. Right. And and where does this intersect? You know, we have all these rules. I know that you work with people who who undervalue themselves financially. And I come out of a background where that's expected. Anybody who works in the religious 
field is expected to want to work for as little as possible. And like scraping by is considered normal. And no, it's considered noble. Yes. Well, that too. And so the reason that this continues to happen is that there is a deep association with this like noble martyrdom of poverty with, with religion, with not with religion, but with holiness or spirituality. Right. And because for some reason there are whole bunches of people who want to keep that, that keeps being reinforced, but it's not true. Right. And it's supposed to at least convey moral authority and some measure of power. Right, you're supposed to somehow. Wait, so let's just stop right trade. there. <laughs> so what that that thing, right? That poverty, vow of poverty and martyrdom should equate and transmit moral authority. Mm-hmm. Does that does that really work for you? No, but if that's the way the culture is constructed. Supposed to do that. Some part of our culture is constructed. And it, it doesn't actually work for anyone because there's also the mega churches. Those people are not living in poverty. No. Right? Where they have the big TV shows and, you know, what are, you know, those people whose names I don't even remember anymore. Televangelists. The televangelists. And not just televangelists, not just like the super creepy Tammy Faye Baker or whatever from like the 1980s. But there are lots of mega churches where they're making a lot of money. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not universal that this is a thing. But there's a lot of conflict in the religious world about that. The churches that aren't making a lot of money and the churches that are, are not just in conflict because of that financial discrepancy, but are also often in conflict in terms of the values that they actually end up upholding. And that's the tricky part, that it appears to support the idea that one morality goes with, and you know there are all kinds of theological problems with things like prosperity gospel thinking. But there are actually different moral structures that are occurring in those two different kinds of churches. And they're differently problematic. I don't think either one of them is correct. But there are more than that. There, there aren't just two. Um, but what I, what I want to say, did you ever read any, um, did you ever read George Lakoff? I did not. There's this book called Don't Think of an Elephant. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the one that I recommend because it's so uh, short. A lot of his stuff, he's a, you know, he's academic. He's a professor, dude. Mm-hmm. So he can go on. And um, there's so many things I want to say about this. But the the one thing, like given our current political system and all of this stuff that I feel like we need to understand is that these these two particular moralities have a whole set of system systems of belief and enforcement mechanisms that go along with them that make it hard for us to see across things and there's this book called don't think of an elephant is all about the kind of basic lays these two kinds of things out and then starts to pick them apart and then he wrote this book called moral politics which is much 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 longer but I love that book because, and I've recommended it a lot, especially like 10 years ago or whenever it came out, because there's this idea that, and in the US, we only have these kind of two-party system. 
Mm-hmm. And I feel like we go to this place of there's a lot of duality and it has to be one way or another. And this and his book kind of reinforces that. But I feel like as soon as I started reading that, I was like, oh, there's like all of these things that go together, all of these things about money that go together, all of these things about behaviors and how we raise our children and, you know, whether we spank them or not and whether we let them cry themselves to sleep and, you know, how we treat women and all of these things are all kind of connected and interwoven in these in these weird kinds of ways that are um that were all kind of laid out in this book anyway so if this is the kind of thing you're interested in interested in listener you might consider reading something like that to mm-hmm. get a more we'll full picture. Show notes. Yeah. so getting back to power and money <laughs> yes what are some of the ways in which people abdicate their power around money i was just taking a drink and i nearly spit it all over my microphone um because what occurred to me was oh all the ways every every way that you can think of like so there's a sort of classic victim triangle where there's the victim and the persecutor and the um what's the one the kind of holier than thou one anyway that kind of go around in a in a triangle where it's like oh i'm so you know everything is so terrible the victim part and then there's the the person who's like ah you did the wrong thing. And then there's the like, they don't call it the savior. They call it something else, but it's like, Oh, I'll rescue you. Right. Rescuer. Yes. So those are three classic ways that people will recognize the victims. Like, Oh, I don't have any. I'll never have any. Oh, I don't have enough. And somebody save me. And then there's this persecutor role of taking or using anger. And then the I'll rescue you. And that can look like I'll use up all my resources to do that. And uh, so that's a classic place to start. That's a really easy place to look is, you know, if you're doing these kinds of behaviors where you've, you're clear that you're not in, in your power or you're looking to power outside of yourself, those are classic ways. But the thing with money, as is true with a lot of things, is until you bring it to light, until you kind of open the door and you you ask yourselves a bunch, you know, a bunch of questions, you just won't it just goes unexamined. And as it's unexamined, you'll just fall into the patterns that you were taught. Mm-hmm. Like we are creatures of, how do I want to say it? Like limbic. So this whole thing about limbic system resonance, right? Where like we basically are completed by the people around us in a, an actual biological way. So the, you know, the people that you spend the most time with are the people that will in, influence your biology the most. And so we're imprinted with these intergenerational family money patterns. And until you can get out of them and look at them and, and say, oh, right, here's the pattern. Here's what my mom did. Or here's what my, my de- parents did. Here's what my grandparents did. Here's what my caregivers, whoever they were, um, or lack of caregivers in the absence of blah, blah, blah. I made up a story that. And you can find these kinds of beliefs about money by making a list being like money is, right? Money is the root of all evil, right? Money um, is blah, or I am blah with money. I am irresponsible with money. I am great with money. I am, you know, um, my parents were, right? um, All the different permutations of this. And if writing isn't your medium, you know, get a partner who will be non-judgmental about it and ask them to repeat the question back to you for a period of two minutes or five minutes or whatever until you run out. Yeah, lots of different ones though. Like it, I found it was different for me if I said I 
blank money than if I say Brianna blanks money made a difference. Yeah. And so you get this list of all of these things that you believe about money. And if you look at that list and you look at the money and time that you spent over even the last month, you'll get a really good sense of what you're actually valuing. And people are really fond of doing this stuff about, oh, these are my top five values. But the truth is the things that we think that we value and the things that we actually value are quite different. And you can tell what people actually value by the things that they spend their time and their money on. So if you're wanting to look at stuff around money, look at in your own life, what have you spent money on in the last 30 days, the last six months, last year of your life? What have you spent your time on? And if you say you value your children, are you actually spending time with your children? Are you spending money on your children, right? Or you try to minimize the money you're spending on your time and time you're spending on your children. And it's, you know, there's no judgment, right? This isn't about, um, in fact, this isn't about bashing yourself in the head about the terrible things that you've been doing Mm -hmm. with money, you know, through your own perspective. Oh, you know, I'm terrible because I didn't do this thing. This is all about like trying to get the judgment off of yourself and look, you know, with as objective eyes as you can about the way that things have been going so that you can then make different conclusions, right? Because that's what your brain's going to do anyway, is going to make a bunch of conclusions about it. So if you can figure out what the conclusions are that you have already made and kind of open that door, then you can start deciding what kind of conclusions you'd like to have about money. And then figuring out what behaviors you need to get to those conclusions. Um, it seems that, it, I mean, my experience is that conclusions generate behaviors, not the other way around. Okay. Um, as soon as you identify conclusions and notice that those conclusions are not accurate, the conclusions will change themselves. The conclusions will change themselves once you know that they're not accurate? Yes. Huh. Yeah, they will start to. Um, mm-hmm. My my experience have is to know they're there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the note I just made to myself is lack of awareness leads to lack of power. Yes, you know, if you're not, you're the the. If I ask, if the question I asked was at root, you know, what in what ways do people abdicate their power around money? Then the answer you're giving me is they don't know what they're doing. Yes. That sounds right. So let me say one more thing about this. If you look at our education system, okay, Uh just in the U.S., because I'm not super familiar with other places in how they do their education. So how much financial education do we get in the U.S. in our public education system? Almost none. You had some? You had any? There were there were available in my high school a couple of business classes. I didn't end up taking them, but they were there. Uh, were they for you? I mean, that's a hard question. They were, I w- would have been in a sort of cuspy, like, well, we weren't exactly expecting you to take these. They were expecting, what they were, the kids they were expecting to take them were students who were not planning to go to college. And who would be going straight from high school to entering the business world? Yeah. Um, I took, I sat in on, somehow I can't remember how this happened. I sat in on one of those classes. That The class that I sat in on um, was for seniors in high school. 
And it was teaching them basic math. And it was teaching them how to balance a checkbook. I don't know what they're like generally, but that's not financial education. I mean, it's it's something. But my experience of watching that is I was appalled, frankly. I was like, first of all, that's not going to help you run a business. I mean, I mean, it might, but that's <laughs> but not going to help you basic. run a business. But yeah, but it's it's not enough to get you anywhere. Um, so as far as I can tell, there is no financial. I mean, they are certainly not going to teach those kids how to invest their money. Right. Right. They're not, they're not going to teach them how to think about money. They're not going to teach them about looking at their conclusions. They're not going to teach them about, you know, how to analyze their revenue. They're not going to teach them about what is, what does it mean to make a profit in your business, you know, or analyze the ethics of paying people and how much you pay them and whether to hire them as a contractor or make them an employee, right? Like it doesn't look at any of that kind of stuff. And even on a basic level of like, yes, it's important to know how to balance your checkbook in 1986, right? But like people don't do that now, whether they should or not is a different issue, but they don't do that, right? It's not even a, we, we don't have, people don't get checkbooks anymore for all that, right? So basically, I mean, as far as I can tell, there's no real financial education. So it's, there's no surprise that when, you know, people become adults that they're like, I don't know what to do about this. There's no surprise that people don't save for retirement or have a savings account or invest their money or buy a house. Nobody teaches young people about how to buy a house. And in the market today, like you have to be actually wealthy to buy a house. Yeah. I mean, we have to put this in context. You and I both live in the Bay Area. There are places where that's not true, but not here. There are places where that's not true. There are. In I mean, I hear that there are places that it's less expensive to buy a house, um, but I always wonder how the what the wage, you know, how the wages line up with that. And it's true, I do hear about people buying houses in other places that, you know. Yeah, there are literally places where you can buy a house for fifty thousand dollars or less. That's how much cars cost. I know, but that's the thing. Like, there's such. I mean, we could. There's a whole other conversation here that we're not going to have in this podcast about about the the discrepancy the wealth discrepancy just in terms of geographic distribution in the United States. Yeah, but even I mean, on a minimum wage but even on a minimum wage salary there are lots of places that are much more accessible than the bay area. I know that there are places that are more accessible. I I had thought that the the discrepancy in terms of because wages haven't risen in so long I thought that put houses, I thought my understanding was it put houses out of reach for a lot of people as a result of the stagnant wages. But um, I'm glad to hear that people can buy houses in some places. That is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know a lot of people who have left more expensive areas with relatively few assets, but with a decent business that they run themselves, moved to a more accessible area and purchased a house. Yes, that is not for me the same as people who have come up in that area being able to buy a house on the local wages. And that's that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about how the the existence of the internet has shifted the power dynamics of money and wages and asset distribution because if you can, if you can get access to the internet, and you can't everywhere, like I, I, where I moved from in Maine, at least 
four years ago, five years ago, there were still large swaths of that area that did not have access to unlimited high-speed internet. And so when we think about who can do this, it's still, there's still a divide. But the number of people who are no longer dependent on making money off of the people who are also local has changed radically. And that's changed everything. In some cases for the worse, because then people can charge higher prices and rely on people who are making money out of state or out of the outside of the region. Out of the country. Yeah. 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 At one point I was I was being very encouraged to use bookkeepers in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And I still get regular inquiries from people in India, Pakistan, various places, um, asking me to hire them um, to work for us. And I've been very committed to hiring local folks here and paying them sustainable wages because that's important to me. Right. Which is important. And, and also, you know, it's a, the questions of, of class mobility, especially across international lines are so interesting. Say more about that. Well, you know, I don't know anything about that. So for listeners who don't know, my father is Indian and I have family members still living in India. And so my perception of a lot of things is I have one foot in one thing, one foot in India and one foot in the United States. And while I was born and raised here and I'm definitely an American, I definitely have this broader international feel for what things are happening. So on the one hand, in the United States, we say, well, outsourcing causes all kinds of problems in the U.S., right? Because when we send our work overseas, then we deny people in the U.S. the jobs. And when we send the work overseas, we can pay both rates that are much higher for, say, India than most of India is used to earning and simultaneously much lower than what we're expected to pay in the United States and often with more lax labor laws. And the result is that we kind of violate, when I travel to India, I think of it, I think of myself as sort of under the prime directive that I don't, I don't want to radically disrupt the system and culture that I'm a guest in because I really am a guest. And so there are all kinds of things that I have to adjust to there. For example, everybody who's even slightly middle class has at least one servant that comes in and does something. You know, they have somebody, there's somebody who comes to clean or somebody who comes to cook in my grandmother's house. My grandmother's a hundred years old, so she needs a lot of support, but she has now, she has 24 hour care, which is just two people, two people on 12 hour shift, seven days a week. And she also has a cook and she also has someone who comes and cleans. And the cook comes for an hour, cooks all the meals for, for a day and then leaves, comes back the next day and comes for an hour and cooks all the meals for a day. And the cleaning person comes for about an hour and mops, sweeps and mops all the floors, which is necessary in her apartment in India because there's a lot of grit in Mumbai that we don't have in most of our even urban areas here. So you have to wash everything down every day or it gets really gross really fast. But there's this rotation of people that you're socially obligated to hire because there's no system of social security. So the only way that people in your community have an opportunity to work is if somebody else hires them. And for folks who are um, 
on the the kind of the lower tiers of labor, although I don't think that there's any reasonable way you can devalue certain kinds of labor compared to certain other kinds of labor. But the, the folks who are in that tier of the labor force um, need to be hired by people who have homes that need to be cared for. And so you have this sequence of the higher up you are financially, the more you're expected to hire because that's how you contribute to the financial health of your community. So so there's like, you have, you have to adjust to that being the way it is. And there are a whole lot of class and caste and social expectations that go with the way that people are treated. And you just have to, like, if you're a guest, you have to just work with it. You can't disrupt it because it makes everyone really uncomfortable and awkward and upset in ways that, that as a guest, you don't have a right to cause that kind of trouble and then leave it behind. So when I think about the question of outsourcing, I think about when an American company hires at slightly elevated from normal wages in India, you suddenly take somebody who by caste and heritage would be swabbing floors for the rest of her life, but was able to take an accounting course. You take her and make her into somebody who can hire someone to swab her floors, who can afford an apartment instead of a, a shack who can send her kids to private school, which is in India, most people go to private school and you only go to public school if you absolutely have to. She can send her kids to private school. She can, public libraries are not a thing in India. In fact, books are stamped with a thing in front that says this book may not be lent or rented out. And so she can afford books for her family. She can afford memberships to private societies. She can afford, right? And so so what you do is make possible class mobility for people who are otherwise isolated by gender, by race, by class, all kinds of things like that. So, so I look at it and I'm like, that's a really tricky call because you have the power to elevate these people out of their current status, which disrupts the class structure in a way that's socially acceptable, as opposed to if I sit on the floor with the cook while she's eating her meal after she's cooked for the whole family, that's not a thing I can do. Like I can do that, but it will upset everybody in the system and it won't make any positive change. It's not, I I often ask my clients, like, what's an effective path to change? This is not an effective path to change. Right, right. So it's complicated. It's complicated. But I love your commitment to hiring local. I love your commitment to elevating people here that also need that kickstart, that support, that opportunity. Because if if we as employers don't create that, who does? Right, exactly. And I, my business is, um, we decided to do a B corporation. Um, so that we could have a mission and not just be profit driven because, you know, these kinds of choices are important. They're, they're at the heart of, you know, of what everything that we're looking at right now in the realm of business and politics and stuff is, you know, are, how are we making these choices? So why don't you say a little more about your decision to be a B Corp? First of all, tell our listeners what a B Corp is for folks who don't know. And then, and then talk a little bit about that choice, because the next question I was going to ask you was, tell me about a time when you used your power for good, and that certainly fits it. <laughs> oh, 
so um, I have been doing finance work for, um, I don't know, 14, 15 years. And I, a few years ago, um, started hiring people. I guess it's been six years or something that I've had people working for me. And, you know, we always hear about corporations and the corporations that you generally hear about are called C corporations. Sometimes they're LLCs and that's a, you know, a bigger topic than this, you know, than the scope of this podcast. Uh, but C corporations are one of the the driving forces of C corporations is profit that you're literally supposed to prioritize profit and therefore shareholder dividends over other metrics that that's the primary metric and B corporations, which are also known as benefit corporations are a form of corporation where you can prioritize your mission over your profitability or at least on par with you can, you get to decide if things are in alignment with your mission and choose to prioritize your mission. In other words, you can't be sued like a C corporation can be sued if it doesn't focus on profitability. I mean, there's a range of things that you can do. Arguably the sort of race to the bottom where people are undercutting each other to get to the lowest cost. And that means all these externalities, all of that is a choice about how, what to prioritize is keeping your company alive. If it's causing harm all around the world, is that the right decision for everyone? And I, I think that's, I think it's very, very complicated in some ways, but I chose to be corporation because my, our mission is about empowering women, specifically empower, empowering women in their businesses. Women start businesses more often than men by a huge factor, but more men make it to the million dollar mark than women by a dramatic amount. And in looking at why that is, because that was the question for me. I was like, what the hell is happening here? Like we have thousands more women starting businesses than men. We should have at least equal numbers, but we don't. They're very, very skewed about the number of people who make it to a million dollars. But the primary reason seems to be money. Men are willing to take funding more, um, funding of all kinds earlier and more often than, than women take. And there's this whole factor of being dudes, which we can't turn women into men or, you know, any anybody of any gender into into men, nor should we be doing that. But growing up with that kind of male privilege, you know, lends a sort of confidence to, oh yeah, of course I can do this. And so they take on much more funding and women are much more conservative with money and are much more willing to admit that they don't know and don't understand money. So they go slower, they take less funding, they set their sights lower, they have, you know, smaller goals. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's no problem. One of a business that you just do sell your cupcakes on Tuesdays, it's all good. There's no problem. But if what you want to do is grow a business or grow a brand or, you know, grow a company, you have to look at how are you going to do that? And a lot of companies get stopped by their relationship and the founders specifically and the CEO's relationship with money. And um, I think that's a tragedy. I think it's why more women's businesses of all kinds don't make it out into the world. Um, and the more that I study this, like there was recently um, another study about women getting funding in business. You know, I live in Silicon Valley, right? And I literally live in Silicon Valley. And I keep reading all of this stuff and looking at the history of money and women in business. And it's like, so now we know that women who get funding at the same VC level as men, that teams that have at least one woman on them that get funding do dramatically better than all male teams, full stop. 
And I just want to be like, <laughs> I just want to scream at the VCs. What the fuck are you doing? They're leaving um, money on the table. That's what they're doing. They're, they're leaving a lot of money on the table by funding only men and only primarily white men and some Asian men. That's who gets funding less than, you know, very, very small, less than 2%. I, I mean, I think it's grown now, but like a very small percentage of women get funding. In fact, I've talked to women who both who have gotten funding and who've tried to get funding and they're like, this is bananas. Like I was talking to the founder of the company my sweetheart works for, who's a woman, one of the founders, and she took the lead on all of the funding things. And she would sit in these VC meetings and she would talk about, you know, she was the one with the plan and they would turn to her husband and be like, Oh, well, you know, tell us about it. And he's like, dude, I don't, I don't know. She's got all the information and it's infuriating that this is happening. And the thing is, it's not as profitable as they, as they make up in their heads. Talk about social constructs. Jeez. So (laughs) I'm just very committed to like helping people get educated about stuff in general and money and sex and bodies are like, the top of my list of things that I have been working on basically my whole life. So how do you think money and sex and power interact? I have a whole class about that. It's really fun. Um, <laughs> when are you they, it, Hello. Tell us. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't run in a while and I am getting closer and closer to putting it up again, but I've, I run this great class called sex, money and power, which is all about looking at exactly this thing. Like what, you know, what is sex? What is money? What is power? Like, what are these things? And how do you use your areas of power, um, you know, or of expertise in one area to strengthen your expertise in other areas? So like, if you are great at sex, how can you use your skills at sex for money? Um, and not just in prostitution, though, you know, I don't have any problem, you know, sex work is work, yeah. right? Um, but like, you know, there are skills in negotiation and communication and all of these things that come along with having powerful sexuality that you can use in money, you can use, you know, to, for your personal power and influence. And it's fabulous. <laughs> and um, that is calling to me more and more. It's so fun. I used to teach it um, for a while. I was teaching it once a quarter and I would partner with a different um, sex expert every time. And I would teach the money part and then we would bring in um, sexuality stuff every time. It was very fun. And I, it's been on my mind a lot lately and, um, it might, we might just have another episode of it in, in Silicon Valley. Cause it's really fun. It's a really fun way to play. I feel like all of these workshops should be, you know, you should learn about, you should learn a lot and you, you have to be able to play in order to embody and take anything away from it. It's great to notice things, but if they don't get down deep enough in you to change your conclusions, it's not, for me, it's kind of not enough, right? It's got to, whatever you're doing has got to get really in there. and Which brings pleasure into the mix, right? It's sex and pleasure yes. and money and power, right? It's those four things. I mean, because because money and, and sex are two of the most taboo conversations in our culture. And I would argue that money has actually become, in many circles, more taboo than sex. Because I can walk into a Unitarian Universalist church and be like, let's run a sexuality education class. And everyone's like, okay, where do we sign up? And I walk into the same church and I say, let's run a class where intimate circles of six people get together and put all of their financial numbers on the table in front of each other and everybody turns white and suddenly we all have to talk about cupcakes or some other thing because right. because holy crap i just yeah it's just it's not even a conversation that most congregational leadership is willing to have 
that we, you know, they're not, they're like, well, I wouldn't, uh, they, they say things to me like, well, that's private and I don't want to share my debt numbers and I don't want to share my spending numbers. And I'm like, why? Like, what are you, what are you doing that feels so out of integrity that you're not willing to share it with five other people in your congregation? Oh, well, it's not out of integrity. Are you sure? Because if it's not out of integrity, six people who have promised to hold your confidences should be able to, to know what you make, what you spend, how you spend it, and where your obligations are. And if we can't talk about that, then, you know, then we've got a whole class conversation to have, right? But that's so, Say more. Right? The thing is, so I was thinking as you were talking about hiring people in, in India, because um, I've, I've thought about that and I've, I have thought about it in terms of also of lifting people up. And I feel like we do have an obligation, you know, um, uh, financially at these different levels of income to contribute to our communities. And I think that people want to contribute. And I think that maintaining a standard of living that is representative of your, the, your perception of your class standing takes a lot of resources. And here it takes massive resources. And I think people aren't willing to share what's going on because they spend money in, in ways that they, like they would say something like, oh, I wish I didn't, or I wish I didn't have to, or, oh, I haven't looked at that in a while, or um, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. And because nobody does it, we have this massive taboo around it, right? When, so now I live with my sweetheart. We've been living together almost a year and it's delicious. And my personal story is a couple of years ago, I got a concussion and I, you know, had a pretty big business and I haven't been able to run it so well. And he's taken over helping me a lot with personal financial stuff, which I have a lot of appreciation for. And at first it was very, there's like a ton of shame around that. And then when we moved in together, we decided to do these weekly. At first we were like, oh, we'll do a monthly money check-in. And after a couple of months went by, we're like, well, we're really not doing that. And eventually Jacques says to me, I want to do this money check-in every single week. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. Okay, let's do it. Because <laughs> um, I'm one of those people that's like, that's terrifying. Okay, let's jump in. Let's try it. Let's try it out. Because like, right. you know. um because intensives walk toward things that do that to us. Yes, that's just kind of who I am as a person. That's right. And so we've been doing for a few months now this every Sunday we sit down, um, usually after dinner, sometimes before dinner, and we go through our our money stuff. And we literally like look at every single transaction and every single account that we've made over the last week. And we talk about them. We don't talk about every single one every single time, but we talk about them. How are you making this decision? What's important to you about this? You know, as we align our lives more and more and more, because we want to have more financial independence. And that might mean cutting things or moving things. But as I've been doing this, I'm talking to more and more couples or, you know, triads and, you know, more sums, et cetera, about how they do their money things. And most people are like, oh, yeah. Either they've squished everything together, but fewer and fewer people do that. There's a lot of like, oh, well, we keep it really separate. Oh, I pay for this and, you know, they pay for that. And and there's not a lot of, I know everything that they spend all all the time, right? And there's no, the other thing I really like is like, oh, we both kind of have a certain amount of um, kind of play money. 
that we can do anything we want with. I mean, we could do anything we want with any money, right? But like, if we have goals, we might want to shift or change our spending. But my point is that like the, you know, the first time sitting down doing this, I was like, oh my God, he's going to look at all of these accounts. And I was like, oh, is there anything? I was really like, oh, is there anything that I can hide away? Can I put this in like my PayPal account instead of my, my, you know, personal account? And like, how can I kind of squirrel away? Can I kind of squirrel away some money so that he can't see it or find it or whatever? And then I was like, why would you do that? Like, first of all, he doesn't, he can't access your accounts, right? So the money is safe wherever it is. It's safe. I'm safe. We're safe. But um, there was still this feeling of like, I'm going to show this person, even though I love him and trust him and all this stuff, we live together, we have a house together, like all this stuff. I was like, you really, you want to look at my money? That's kind of terrifying. And um, it's taken some time for it to get less charged. But I think every week, one or the other of us has something we're like, oh, well, I did this thing and let me tell you about it. Like something I didn't think to tell you during the week or something that like, I want to make this decision. And so we, we sort of have this rule. We've made some rules for ourselves about how much we can spend without checking in with the other person and that kind of stuff, which I think is really useful because again, we have goals, places to go, things to do. But I think you can really only do that kind of thing with a partner if you're actually in partnership with them and you can actually say, Hey, hundred percent, this is who I am, right? This is how I'm going to show up a hundred percent. Because if nobody does that, right? If you don't do that, your partner's not going to do that, Mm -hmm. right? But the first time that people start showing up that way and they're willing to be transparent and they're willing to share everything and they're willing to name their numbers, it's a game changer, Mm -hmm. right? The vulnerable level level of intimacy. Yeah. So we all say we want intimacy. We say we want partnership. We say we want relationship. But then we hold back. We don't tell. We're not vulnerable. We worry that they're, the other person's going to judge us. And I have to say, they're judging you right now, whether or not you do anything. Like, that's what brains do. They judge you. Don't worry about it. It's too late. They're already judging you. Like, move on. Um, because you can't do anything about it. So it's, you know, it's like the tides. You're not going to change it. Just keep moving. Right. And you can't um, change somebody else's behavior by your behavior like that's a whole other interesting no thing. somebody somebody once said no, to we have me, a name that, for that it's called manipulation right somebody once right? said to me if you're if you're changing your behavior to try and get a different behavior out of somebody else that's manipulation or i mean there's and there's some crossover with self-protection right like if you're a kid and you're right not doing something yes. so your parents don't explode at you that's kind of a different dynamic but um we're talking about consenting adults. Yeah, we can't get into talking about people who cannot give consent because that's a whole different realm of things. So, assuming that you and your partner or partners are can can give consent and are in relationship with people you trust, right? And those are two really big ifs. Mm-hmm. And we want to think all of that's true, but if that's true, then I just I want to recommend that you go all in. Right. If this is if that's what you want, if you want to have a really vulnerable, connected, authentic. Right. This is a big word. People are like, ah, I want a really authentic, vulnerable, intimate relationship. Then you have to be willing to be vulnerable, authentic. Right. Transparent. You have to be willing to be those things if you want those things. They don't come from nowhere. And. I'm going to take this one step further because I know this is an uh, this is an idea. This is a, a place near and dear to your heart that you have to be willing to be known at a deep level to be served well. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the way your voice just changed. <laughs> it's true. Um, 
you know, I met, uh, so now we're going to talk about sex. I met Jacques when I was doing a year of studying orgasm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I discovered this thing, which is true, which is that my desire and my joy causes other people to want to, to serve me and to, you know, to, for me to serve, you know, in the world in a big way, but for other people to serve me. And um, that is a bold, possibly ridiculous statement, but totally true. There's nothing ridiculous about it. Yeah. Well, you know, you're going to give me a vulnerability hangover. Jeez. <laughs> I can't give that to you. You can give it to yourself, though, if you want. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> But there is this thing about wanting to be served if that's in your makeup or wanting to serve people if that's in your makeup. And I would contend that most people lean one way or the other, whether it enters their relationship or sexual dynamics explicitly or not. And that requires this deep level of knowing each other. They can't, you know, yes, and trust your partner and speaking specifically financially, your partner can't support you financially if they don't know not only who you are and what you're doing now, but who, you, who you'd like to be and what you'd like to be. Yeah. Um, sharing my life and my goals and my desire for a community um, is what had Jacques want to buy me a house. I was like, I want community in this space. I want this, you know, and I built an image for him over time. And he, he is very aligned with that image. He also loves community and wants people, you know, over and wants to build a community and wants to be in connection. And, um, and so he was like, let's do this. And I just have to say, he's so sweet about it because he's definitely less extroverted than you are. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, a lot. And so there's this beautiful space where he's aligned with your desire for community and you're aligned with his desire for like the solitude he wants. And so you have this elegant ongoing negotiation about what that's (laughs) going to look like when you have people in your house that you live in together. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. We have our own bedrooms. Um, And the last party we had at our house, um, we were doing, we did this game called The Secret Lives of Gingerbread Men, which is a whole other conversation. It's fantastic. But like we, um, he helped me make the, in fact, he made the gingerbread and rolled it out and, and you know, we made all these cookies and stuff and um, which were the character sheets for the game. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. And then he was like, I need to go away now. And he went in his room, like closed the door for an hour. Like the house is full of people and he's just like, Bye. <laughs> and then he came out in an hour. He was like, oh, I feel better. And people were still there. And he came out and hung out and was very happy. And, you know, but like, I think there's a way that if he didn't have me as a partner, that makes having people over very hard that suddenly you're like, yeah, no, go home. Get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> or you all can stay out here in the living room, but I'm going to go retreat in my room for an hour. I mean, I think right. that it gets awkward. I- I think that that's getting normalized. Like conferences now have chill rooms a lot of times. You know, when people have parties, they're often designating a chill room or a quiet room if they have enough space to do it. Here in the Bay Area, that's often not true. But if you have enough space to do it, people are often doing that. And I, right. And I feel like 
like relationships like yours and the transparent way you do it in front of everybody. Like, it's not like Jacques calls you into the back room and says, mutter, 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 I have to mutter, mutter, mutter. And he disappears. And, and unless somebody asks, you don't say anything. He like in the middle of the room, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break. I'll see you all in an hour. And your joyous acceptance of whatever he says he needs models that kind of relationship where we can all honor each other's needs and just be like, if that's what you need, that's what you need. You're the expert on you. Like That's so exciting that you think that. It's really great. I do. I am very committed to both of us getting our needs met. And, um, um, you know, that whole thing of being joyful about letting him wander off into his own world is, is really built on this idea that one day he said to me, he's like, I really love that you tell me things. And I was like, well, good. Cause I'm not sure there are any other options. Right. And he was like, no, really, my life is made a lot better by you telling me things. If you tell me, you know, I can solve the problem, I can get it for you, you know, we can take care of it. But if you don't tell me, we can't do it. There is no partnership if you don't tell me what's going on. And so I asked him for the same thing. I was like, please tell me everything. Yeah. Yeah. Which brings us back to communication. And I'm, extremely fond of saying that bad communication is the root of all evil, which may be a slight exaggeration, but only a slight exaggeration. But only just. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So are there any power situations where you wish you had done something differently and then maybe went back and corrected it afterwards? As soon as I figure it out, I try to correct things, but um, let's see. With my son, I was a solo parent from the time my son was five until, you know, Jacques has stepped into parenting with me. But um, so for 15, I don't know, some number of years, maybe not quite 15, um, I was solo parent, did 100% of everything. And um, as you can imagine, sometimes that went well and sometimes it went um, not as well. And... I am consistently in a power position of power with my son, right? We're still financially entangled. We still support him. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always go well. And the, one of the places that I'm most actually proud is that every time I notice it, whether it's a current moment or a past moment that is affecting a current moment, I apologize to him. I take responsibility for it and I uh, invite invite the conversation. Like sometimes he's like, when I first started this, I would say to him, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry I yelled at you. I, you know, whatever the thing was. And he would say, that's okay. And, and at first I would take that. But as soon as I figured it out, I was like, it's not okay. What I did was not okay. And I'm sorry. And you are not responsible for placating me or soothing me about these things, right? I'm, I'm the mom. Yeah. You don't have to you don't have to do that. I'm I'm not doing this to manipulate you and you don't have to soothe me as a result of, you know, my my bad behavior. Mm-hmm. And over time he um has been able to like I can see that restoring his power. Apologies apologies often restore power. That's for me that's kind of the point of apologizing is in the places where I have I have taken too much power and just to say 
I'm sorry, that belongs to you here. You can, you can have it back. Um, and I just watch it restore him every time something happens or he brings something up. Do you remember that time that thing happened? And I can say, tell me more about that and apologize in very specific language to make sure it hits that right spot. Like, what is it that he needs from this? And give him the apology tool resources to restore himself. And so it's not a one and done situation. It's, it's an ongoing every day, day to day, like tell, you know, tell me what's going on. Um, in fact, my son and I have an agreement that we've had since he was very small. And I, our agreement is that he tells me the truth. I told him he doesn't have to tell, you know, if he feels intimidated by anyone, his teachers, the police, he doesn't have to tell them the truth, but he has to tell me the truth. And I said, you tell me the truth and I will do my best to always be on your side. Like I got your back. And, um, that has, you know, it's always been perfect, but, um, I reminded him of that when I moved out, like we're no longer living together. And it started this thing where now he gets to call me again. Like until he was about 17, he, you know, asked me for help and all these things. And then, you know, then it's hard. And so now that we're not living together and, um, I kind of work to restore that him and his power, he calls me and asks me for advice, asks me for feedback, asks me for help. And, you know, as an adult, like your relationship with your parents is, is by choice rather than by force. And so the only power that we really have is, you know, that, that kind of power of influence. And that means that you really have to hold power well in order to have good relationships with your children when they become adults and have their own um, autonomy and their own power. Mm-hmm. It's really important to me that I have a good relationship with my, my son. Yeah. And, and I've known you for long enough now to know that it's been sometimes really hard and you've worked really hard at developing a good relationship and at, at maintaining it once you've had it. Uh, yes. And you act on that. Like there are people who say they're committed and then they don't do anything about it, but you're actually doing something about it. And that's, that's wonderful and admirable. Um, the reason that happens um, is that most people are overcommitted, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, Oh, I'm committed to this and this and this and this and this. And I actually had the opportunity to go back and look through my commitments and decide which of them I wanted to keep. Um, and I got rid of a lot of commitments and put things kind of on the outside of my my sphere of influence um, and made a real conscious decision to be committed to my relationship with my son and my relationship with my partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always an interesting thing to be like, I'm going to audit my commitment list. Mm-hmm. And, and my and, relationships list. Mm-hmm. And decide which relationships are not not what they need to be for you. And it's, and, and to be able to do that, especially with relatively little um, judgment, you know, not this person is bad, not having to make somebody else wrong for it, but just say, you know what, this isn't the way this is working, isn't working for me. And also, but I've also been doing the opposite recently is trying to, because I've moved locations and I'm not physically located with people. I'm actually in the process of doing the opposite. Okay. Who of these people I do, I do want to bring in, I do want to bring closer because both of those things are true, right? You can put people in the outer levels of your circle, but you can also bring them closer. 
Yes, absolutely. Like you and I are now like an hour plus away from each other. And that's if the traffic's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and so if we want to be and and that doesn't sound like much to someone living in rural Maine, I will own that. Um, I have lived places (laughs) where an hour is what it takes to get to the grocery store. And, but, but this, the culture of this region is very much, if it takes more than 15 minutes, I'm not sure I want to invest that time. And so, um, if you and I are going to stay in touch, we have to A, use the internet well, and B, make the deliberate decision to keep each other in our circles because we want it. So, and those um, are, yeah, interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, it is. (laughs) So um, let's take a look. Do you have any challenges around power? Do you have stuff you're still wrestling with or still curious about or still depressing? Yes. So I'm very powerful. Um, I might not be powerful in a global elite sort of way, um, but I have, I carry a lot of personal power. And one of the reasons that that is, is because I have consciously cultivated my relationship with power. Um, And I, I, in fact, you know, people do this word, this thing about values. And instead of values, um, I worked with Alison Armstrong and she has this thing about noble qualities which is all about asking yourself the question about what, what do you want for other people, right? If you could give them one gift, what would it be? And then you you kind of find your top five and that's what we use as values instead of, instead of kind of made up values. It's like, you know, what are you, what do you actually want for other people? Which is a real deep look at what, what's actually going on. So um, this is relevant to to me and here because it turned out that my top noble quality is actually power. And I have really struggled with it because I know that I have a lot of power. I can walk into a room and see it. People turn and look at me. Um, When I speak, um, my voice carries weight. I know that people are influenced by my decisions um, and by my, by where I take conversations. And I have to be, um, I have to notice who else is in the room. Like if I am not careful, I can take over a room, a conversation, an auditorium. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, like if I decide, you know, it it goes both ways, right? If I decide I can make a space mine and and it doesn't take much, right? I can, I can have all eyes on me. I know I've done it. Um, and so, in order to not be the center of attention in every room, I have to be very conscious about how I use my power. And sometimes I do it well and sometimes I don't do it well. But I feel like I have this ongoing relationship with, I, if power is the ability to act and I want the people around me to really have the ability to act, what does that mean? Right? And I actively work on it in two ways, right? I teach about money and I teach about sex. And those are two like the most taboo things, right? Like we have going on, um, and that actually carries also with it a lot of power, right? That I have been a person who's like, okay, I'm going to go into that dark room, mm-hmm. and people are like, all right, fine, I'll go with you, but I won't go alone, right? Right. I literally took people on a tour of of early to bed when I lived in Chicago. Early to bed is one of the feminist sex toy stores in Chicago. And I literally, people were like, oh, I would never go to a store like that. I was like, I go to them all the time. You want a field trip? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing I don't think much about anymore. Um, it's yeah. These are places that there are all kinds of places that people are scared to go for all kinds of reasons. Right. And, um, I go to them. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so I just have to be conscious of my power, but being conscious of my power means different things in different places. And, you know, when I look around the room of like everybody and their noble qualities and what they want for the world and people are like truth and authenticity and, and I'm like power, power. like, like, um, it really, uh, it really changes the vibe of a room from people who are, you know, who are like joy and whatever. And I'm like, I have, you know, power and I have freedom and I have integrity as, you know, three of my top and joy. You know, I am also very joyful. I but I like you for a reason. Um, <laughs> so those are those are the things that I'm working with, which means that most people who don't, ha- you know, don't have power, freedom, right? Just those two have the way that I am changes a room, and there's ways that that's great, right? I walk into a place you know, like a high workshop and they're like, it's about choice. I'm like, great. I choose hot tub. Right. And they're like, wait, right. wait, wait. <laughs> right. But, and it's fine that I go, but then the four people behind me, they're like, you guys don't go. <laughs> and so, and so just figuring out like, you know, how to slip out of a room quietly and how to, how to keep my mouth shut and how to listen in a really deep way, how to ask questions yeah, those are skills that I've been working on cultivating. And we all have a, like a status position that we prefer to be in and um, what to do when I don't feel like, you know, I have my kind of one of my top status choices in the room, like how to maintain my mood when I, you know, when I'm not getting what I want. There's um, those, they're not static, right? It's not like I have this one gentle, easy question that I'm like, oh, maybe I'll consider this. Um, I feel like inside of me, there's this like knockdown drag out fight with me and the universe about power. Right. Um, and so, so it's ongoing is what I'm saying forever. So you have a power struggle about power with the universe. Yeah. About power, about who has power, about when we have power, how we have power, ethical uses of power. Yeah. Pointed uses of power. Should I use my power? What should I use it for? Yeah. And in fact, I said to a therapist once, I was like, I'm not sure what to do with the power of my attention. And she was like, what do you mean? And I kind of wanted to be like, and scene, right? Like, right. <laughs> you don't have any sense. If you, don't, like what if, if you don't know what I'm talking about when I talk about power, like, and I feel like there's a, a way in which um, some professional training, like ministry training, like a lot of ministry training, not all of it, like a lot of therapeutic training, you know, those things, they teach the practitioner to be so self-effacing that often um, reclaiming that power, you know, I have a really interesting experience with my seminary experience where I feel like one of the things it was designed to do was teach cis white men to step back. Mm -hmm. And going to seminary as a not cis, not white, not man... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> figuring yeah. out that that it had actually stripped me of an enormous amount of power, some of which was institutionally stripped and some of which was kind of specific to my identity and my relationship to the school. 
but but that coming out of parish work and deciding that parish work was actually not a place where my where my skills were best used, but also recognizing that the parish wasn't ready for me to claim the kind of power that I wanted to be claiming and that I needed to be claiming. And so I, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, I know I can, can capture a room. The question is, should I and how and what do I do when I don't want to do that or when that's not the best choice for me? And for me, it's 50%. Like I'm going from being super quiet and super self-effacing to this super like, no, I'm ready to be in front of the room and not just on for one hour on Sunday morning. And so what, what, Where's the balance? Like, how do I figure out how those pieces fit together? It's really interesting. And it's interesting to be around other people who were socialized as women who have, who are also like, they want power, but they don't know how to be with it. And so there's this, like, this power struggle thing that happens a lot. And now I used to be really scared when I felt that, like, tension with somebody. I'd be like, oh, shit, I better stay out of her way. And now, and and I'd be like, oh, God, this is not going to end well, right? This is going to end up in a fight. And, like, one of my closest friends from seminary now is someone that it took us almost a year and a half before we got around that. But now I'm like, oh, I know what's happening. <laughs> We're both trying to figure out how we occupy a space of power in a cultural space that doesn't want us occupying a space of power, this is probably someone I'm really going to like. What's the best strategy to get around this culturally constructed tension that we have? Mm -hmm. And it's different with everybody. Yeah. So any last words for our listeners? Keep going. <laughs> If you're here and you're, you know, you want to have these conversations about power and about ethics and keep doing it. This is the thing, you know, one of the things that the world really needs. It's important to keep in this conversation and, you know, look at your life and ask, keep asking yourself questions. Am I using power well? You know, keep looking, keep looking. And where tell tell them where they can find you if they want to do more with you if they'd like to find out when you're next running that sex money and power workshop if so they need my, an accountant that's right so we have a great now we have a great three tiered bookkeeping system for helping um, small businesses get profitable using their you know money and metrics. And you can find that work at blissyourmoney.com. Everything, you know, if you go to blissyourmoney.com, you'll you'll get everything that you need about the work with money. If you want to um, listen to me talk about sex and sexcations and um, body stuff, which is about, you know, fat positivity, um, I have this podcast called Fat Girl Finds Love. And um, it's very fun. And we talk a lot about um, sex and relationships and also power and racism and everything healing you can find fat girl finds love everywhere you find podcasts and should people find you on twitter or facebook or are those the best two places to find you um e each of those has a f ha like so there's definitely um 
Fat Girl Finds Love Facebook page. And there is um, a Bliss Your Money Facebook page. Both of those are great. And um, they and they are Financial Bliss, you know, Facebook.com slash Financial Bliss and Facebook.com slash Fat Girl Finds Love. Those are easy to place places to find me. Um, and then if you'd just like to see how beautiful I am, I'm on Instagram as Love Dosed. Oh, beautiful. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I love the way that our conversation meandered. It was not what I had maybe thought might happen, but I know better than to predict too hard on these. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's great to talk to you. I love, you know, I love hanging out with you and like, you know, anytime, any place, anywhere you want to do it, I'm, I'm up for it. You want to do this again? I'm up for it. You just, yeah, it's a privilege um, to be in your circle and I appreciate being invited. Absolute joy to have you here, and I'm so glad you said yes. And we will see you, I'll see you in person, and everyone else can see you on the internet. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com. <laughs>